0: week on PA Books, Andrew Capitz, author of Good War Great Men.
1: Andrew Capitz, author of Good War Great Men, the detailed accounts of a machine gun battalion during World War One. What got you interested in World War One?
0: I? I have to say it was my, my grandfather not knowing about his history, uh, when I grew up in Trafford, Pennsylvania. Um there was a portrait of my grandfather in my house and like a lot of older pictures, you grow up, it kind of blends in with the everything else in the house. Um, I was at a fundraiser here in Pittsburgh uh, at the Soldiers and Sailors Memorial and it was a fundraiser for the Marine Corps. I was in the Marines, my father was my brother and we were there and the Soldiers and Sailors had a display case and we were looking inside the display case and there was this 1917 Browning machine gun. And my father said, looking at the machine gun, he said that's the type of machine gun my father shot when he was in France. And I had didn't know the story. And I just, you know, things started racing through my, you know, where was he in France? Um, what did he do? Because he, he tended to be, a, my grandfather was a smaller gentleman and very reserved in his older age. And you remember him? Yeah, I do. I was um, I was about nine when he passed, uh, but I do remember him. But again, very reserved. At nine, I'm not going to have a conversation about the war with with him. And but he also he also had a battalion photograph that he proudly displayed in his house, and it hung there for years. And we could all always, as kids, we could pick him out of the picture. We knew where he was. And um, but I could not relate the old man that I knew with anything that a young man at 23 would have done buying a machine gun in France. So, it was, um, so I started to dig into the history or his history and looking for some kind of uh, information that would tell me where he was. And in the uh, Carnegie Library they have a book. He was in the 80th division. And it was the 313th Machine Gun Battalion was part of the 80th. And there was a young man who wrote a story about his experiences in the 80th. And that captivated my attention to, wow, this is, this is fascinating what these men did. And, um, and I just kept digging and digging to see if I could find firsthand accounts that would have put my grandfather in certain places. And that's, uh, that's what sort of started it all for me. Now
1: just to set the groundwork, because people might not be clear on actually what was going on in World War I.
0: First of all, when did it happen and who was fighting who? So it, probably going back to the uh, – there there's so many moving parts to get to that point. But um, for the United States, the involvement started when we declared war on Germany. And going back even to before the war had started for us, it was the assassination of the Arch, um, Archduke and his wife, it was a uh, Serbian and um, you know again going it's it hard to tell all what those moving parts were, but at some point the United States was saying, "You know do we really want to get involved in this and the public in general's saying that this is not really our war and and it kept being pushed off and pushed off and and the famous Zimmerman telegram that um, that Germany was basically saying to um, Mexico, "Hey, you can have your border states again, and um, if if you um, declare war on on the United States, and that was just one of the uh, key key parts that I thought was interesting. And uh, when when I hit the press that hey, Germany wants to come bring war to to our lands, um, and then there were other Cases where Germany had um, unrestricted warfare on shipping, and so with the ships going down, the at some point they, when the United States declared war on Germany, it was April of uh, 1916 or 17. I can't remember now because it, it was 17. It was 17, and uh, they had not yet, really, didn't have an army at that point. You know, the United States had about 200, 225,000 men you know, ready to go to war. They obviously couldn't do that. And when they asked for volunteers, they just surely didn't get enough signing up. Um, so they ended up having a draft, a select, Selective Service draft.
1: When the U.S. got in the war, who were our allies and who were our opponents?
0: So we were, um, we were siding with the British and the French and really when Germany invaded Belgium the and um, the French um, and the British said this is not going to happen you're not going to walk right into uh, into Belgium and and take over and the Austro-Hungarian Empire was backing Germany and the um, then the Russian Empire was going to back um, Essentially, the, um, the Slavic states. And so, we, again, multiple, there's a list of, uh, of, of countries that don't even exist anymore. Um, so, that fighting on, on, on either side. But it was basically the United States, the big powers. Once we were involved, it was United States, Great Britain, and France. Did your, father, your grandfather, was he uh, drafted or did he enlist? Um, he was drafted. What was he doing at the time he got drafted? So he was, um, originally he was born in Tyrone, Pennsylvania, and he was working as a laborer. And he found this town, Trafford, Pennsylvania. They had a a brickyard, and he was uh, working in a brickyard. Um, And he actually, on his draft papers, he he did not want to go. Like a lot of, you know, it would be nice to say, oh, he he was one of the first to to sign up, but the reality was I, I think you know, I think about what he would have been thinking about at 23. Do I really want to go over there myself? And particularly because it, it was it was 1916, I, I believe it was July of 16, when you hear uh, the stories of the uh, the psalm and how many thousands of, of um, men were killed. Um, and you would say, why would I want to go into that bloodbath? Um, but they, still they had been drafted and um, there, were, were, there were times there were slackers of what they called. And, um, and if you did not uh, follow through with the draft, you were going to be prosecuted by the, by the government. So he went? So he, he went. Where did he go? Um, he left uh, Irwin, Pennsylvania on a train and headed to uh, Petersburg, Virginia. It was Camp Lee. Uh, probably about 60,000 men, if you can imagine. It was a small city at that time. Uh, built uh, just for the, uh, the training. So he was
1: told, okay, you're in the 80th and you're in the 313th. Right. W- were they uh, assigned by region? I mean, most of the people were from the same area?
0: Yeah, so the 80th Division was, they called them the Blue Ridge Division. It was men that were drafted out of Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia. Uh, most of the men in this particular battalion that I write about uh, were from Western Pennsylvania a lot from Pittsburgh, Westmoreland County, but the largest contingent uh, from Erie County, um, Erie, Pennsylvania, and um, even after the war, the the men had a a little social um, place up in Erie, Pennsylvania, for a number of years. Um, You said um, that they trained together. How
1: long between the time they enlisted and the time they shipped overseas? Uh,
0: it varied. Uh, they had some early draftees that were so. June of uh, seventeen was when they first uh, had the draft. There were men going down to Camp Lee in the fall of seventeen. Uh, my grandfather had waited almost a whole year before he even, from the time he was drafted until he had to show up. Um, and not quite sure how they picked when would when these guys would go, uh, but it was. Um, when he finally showed up, he was only in the United States maybe a month and a half, two months before he was shipped uh, overseas. Did he know
1: anyone else in his unit when he got there?
0: I don't know if he knew anyone in this, in the, this particular unit. Certainly the men in Erie, a lot of them knew each other. Um, so uh, they, uh, the, the number of men that did know each other in this unit uh, w- was interesting because the, when they're writing letters back, I, they're mentioning, hey, so and so was here, so and so was here. Um, but I don't know if my grandfather necessarily knew anyone when he went. So, when you decided this had to be a book, how did you set about gathering
1: all the information?
0: I didn't know it was going to be a book, quite honestly. I thought it was kind of just a family research project that turned into, while I think there's other families out there and uh, people just gener- in, in having a general interest in World War I, I thought um, as we were approaching the centennial, of World War One, I, I thought I should probably see if I can't put this together so other people can read it and, and appreciate the history. Um, and so it was for years; it was just a an interest in researching and, and finding the stories. And um, and then one day I just said, "All right, I'm going to try to s- try to put something together." Where'd you find all the diaries that you quote in here? Um, a number of them were. Uh, I did quite honestly just Google search on the unit and then I would find there was something in an archive. For example, one was in um, the Hoover Institute out in Stanford. Um, I I contacted a college student out there who copied it for me and sent it. uh, One in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, So I think as family members had these diaries and they didn't know what to do with them, it seemed to be that they would donate them to uh, either their college I had one um, family that it's uh, the, my com- my grandfather's company commander uh, named uh, of John Kane and um, the Kane University out in New Jersey they were putting on a program or a, or a um, an exhibit for the World War one uh, two brothers that served and I called out and uh, uh, talked to someone out there and John's father or um, um John's son actually said, "Here's all of my father's letters on disc. Use them however you feel." Oh, which I thought was fantastic, uh, just to be able to, to be that um, to receive those letters and uh, so gracious, gracious, gracious for him to allow me to use them in the book.
1: Did your grandfather keep a diary or
0: write letters home? Not that I'm aware of anything. Found very uh, a few things here and there, just as far as. Um, um, Trinkets, a couple photos that maybe his other members in his unit gave him, but there was very little that that he had. And no medals or old
1: uniforms or anything like that.
0: There was we had a uniform and a helmet in my. Um, I can remember us as kids playing with it, and some at some point it just disappeared, probably thrown out with you know just as no one was quite interested in it. But my my I think my father mentioned. He remembers, or maybe it was my aunt, remembers uh, feeding chickens with the helmet, you know, just, or using, delivering water with the, uh, with the old doughboy helmet. Uh, you start the book with a, an anecdote about being at a
1: ceremony. You, as a little kid, were at a ceremony, for a World War I ceremony. Would you tell that story?
0: Yeah, it was, um, I'm gonna guess it was probably about 1975 or 76, and in our, in the town of Trafford, there is a World War I memorial and um, I was very familiar with the memorial because I share my grandfather's name. And on the memorial, there's three rows of names, and, and one of the last names is his name. And so as a kid, I would like to go up and you know, kind of feel the letters because it was my name, Andrew Capets. And um, I remember my grandfather being at the ceremony, and the commander, I'm guessing, of the Legion was, was standing and reading and acknowledging all of the World War I members who were there. And I was um, you know, maybe eight or nine and not kind of paying attention. And um, when they first bro- cast the bronze for that memorial, they forgot to put my grandfather's name on. So it kind of stuck out. And the commander said, um, as, after he read all the names, someone must've mentioned, hey, you forgot Andy Caput's. And he spoke up on the speaker and he says, Oh, Andy Kappitz, we forgot you again, and instantly I knew what they meant. They forgot to recognize him again, and just how reserved my grandfather was. He, you know, modestly just sat there and you know, kind of, no problem. Uh, I was there. It doesn't? I'm here now, and so I thought it was uh, it was an interesting thing. And, and the reason I think about it is that memorial, uh, unrelated to this battalion um, I was on a committee years later and we renovated the park in Trafford but we were also we put in a new memorial for the uh, global war on terror and I was asked by um, uh, at the time he was uh, the mayor of Trafford was Ray he asked me hey why don't you join us because we could use your background because you like history and, and see what we come up with and, and we were about to rededicate this, the park and someone came to us and said, "You know, there, here's the original World War I pamphlet when they dedicated this." And when we opened it up, there was a name on that memorial that wasn't, or there was a name in the pamphlet that was not on the memorial. And his name was Nicola Elmo. And um, so I was real proud to be able to add Nick's name with our group for the first time, and it was uh, like 89 years um, to the to the memorial. So how much time
1: putting this book together did you spend just kind of pouring over letters and trying to figure out handwriting?
0: Um, it was, it had to be years, <laughs> it, because I, I, when I would find something, I was more interested in just absorbing it. I can remember re- receiving um, photographs from a, uh, a young woman in um, North Carolina, she was a student, I paid her just to go make copies. And just as a, uh, when my kids were young, uh, they'd go to bed, and I'd sit with my laptop and just read, read the letters. And um, oftentimes, I always had the hope that I am just going to see my grandfather's name. Whether good or bad, I was going to see his name in the letters, but I wouldn't see his name. I might see someone else's name, and I would say, all right, who is this person? And then I would start researching that particular person's name sometimes you go down a rabbit hole because you can find interesting things about what that person did in their own life and I'm thinking to my own self wow that was the, this person served with my grandfather and a lot of these guys just did some fantastic things in their own lives um and that was sort of the reason how why I, how, the, how the title of the book came up um with for for how successful a lot of these men were who were some of the people who you felt like you got to know pretty well um, the probably the one interesting one was um, it was um, he was a, an enlisted man in my grandfather's company. They, his, they, he went by the name Ben Holland, but his real name was or full name was Wallace Ben Holland. Um, I was real fortunate to find his um, great nephew lives up in Erie, and I found him online, and he had put a picture of Ben with the unit number, and I contacted John, John Corkland in Erie, and I said, uh, John, would you mind if I saw some of the letters that you have? And he and I chatted, and, and he was going to copy them, and it was going to take a long time. <laughs> so he said, um, "He said, how about if I just send you these letters? I said, I promise I will return them. Quite a risk. Yeah, and and, and that's just, again, the generosity that when uh, uh, going into this research, I think that um, so John was wonderful, and he let me ha- have the actual, the physical letter, and um, I got to know his great uncle um, in this story, and and it, it to me it meant a lot because he was enlisted um, member of the unit. A lot of the other men that were in this uh, in this story writ- were writing were officers, um, but Ben Holland ended up being killed at the end, uh, toward the end of the war, Um, and so he he was a special guy.
1: I want to read you something that he wrote that Ben Holland wrote, and this was December 1917, so he was still in the U.S. at the time. All the German and Austrian men that haven't citizen papers are going as prisoners of war and went from this company yesterday. So they gathered up Germans and Austrians who were not citizens, who were
0: in the Army and and put them in a POW camp? I don't know a lot of, uh, of how they did that because I, did came, I came across that as well, that um, I, I want to say it was in October of um, 1918 is when the United States declared war on Austro-Hungarian Empire. It wasn't at the same time as, as the German Empire. Um, but what was interesting is the, you, you mentioned that, that a lot of the uh, immigrants in this battalion were of German heritage. One of the one of the uh, officers, uh, a guy by the name of Otto Leinhauser, I mean, you can't get any ger- more German than a name than Otto Leinhauser. He was loved by the men. He was loved by the officers. Just a really. He was born in the United States, but his father was was German, and and you wonder what kind of a pressure he felt. Uh, but he was a big guy, so I don't think anybody was going to push him around. Uh, but it is interesting that those. Um, and I don't remember from history how they were nationalized, um, but um, but I re- you know I recall that you know some of these I want to say the the language that they used on describing um, the different nationalities within their own troops. At some point, it's a little bit of a dig against another person, but, but they're also their brothers in arms in the end.
1: Oh, you say in the book that the, the the 313th Machine Gun Battalion recruited men who were native to Russia,
0: Belgium, Ireland, Italy, and the United States, so quite a
1: diverse group.
0: It was. Um, one of the officers, one of my favorite quotes that, uh, that showing the diversity of the unit was this gentleman named... Um, Thomas, Captain Thomas, and he's writing home to his parents and he says, I have a bunch of draft from Erie, Pennsylvania. And he said, 32 of the 172 can't speak English. He said, I have a Polish interpreter, a Romanian interpreter, a Italian interpreter, and a Greek interpreter. And then he said, um, he said, my first sergeant first gives his orders in English and then in Polish. And I thought that was just a wonderful description of these guys because about 20% were, um, of the makeup of the uh, U.S. at that time were these were men who were not born in the United States. So one in five of, the, of these men, and that's about how many were in that particular unit that uh, he's talking about.
1: While we're on the subject of Ben Holland, he wrote, I just took out insurance for $10,000. It costs $6.50 a month. If I get crippled, I get $66 a month for my lifetime. If I get killed, you will get $66 until the $10,000 is paid. His monthly pay will now be $8.50 a month. So he was making $15 a month, and out of that, they took $6.50,
0: pretty big percentage of his Right, absolutely, absolutely. And um, I'm happened to be in insurance and I, those kind of things interested uh... me and he was very well aware of um, he was trying to he came from uh... there were eleven kids in his family and and he was really worried about his 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 own uh... parents being able to uh... take care of these kids, and and um, he wanted to make sure that they were well taken care of and he uh, you know in this case i think he did he was going to do whatever it took to to make sure and they did have an option of whether or not they were going to take certain insurance. Uh, I'm sure that the government would have had something, but could they have gotten more in this way, this way it sounded?
1: What do you know about their trip overseas?
0: Um, they, they boarded on May 24th, um, and it took about two weeks. This 1918? 1918. 1918. It took them about two weeks to get there. If you recall, they were really worried about U-boats and there, there was this unrestricted uh, submarine warfare and so during the day they had to be very vigilant in looking out at the water to see um, you know, potentially was there something underneath them that could take them down and so there are a few uh, false uh, reportings that would get people excited only realizing it, it, it was nothing but um, it was the first time most of these or a lot of these guys have, had ever left. Uh, they got, at some point, a number of them got seasick, very excited just to be able to see, two weeks later, see, see land. But they entertained themselves with, uh, whether it be boxing or movies or um, vaudeville. Um, and um, in, in the evenings, they were not allowed to have any, any lights on, you no know, smoking on the deck, anything like that. So,
1: so when they got... To France, where did they go? Where were they sent?
0: Um, it, it was they docked at, um, or they came into Bordeaux. Once they, they docked off of and off the um, coast, and then they were sent from Bordeaux north to um, an area where they were essentially going to be given their first equipment. Um, they call it considered a rest camp. But most of these guys were hiking quite a bit, or they would be put onto rail cars. They had to hike to the rail cars. And then they were given their, uh, at the time, British equipment. Uh, They were going to be trained by the British, and they had to turn in their American style uh, armament because as they were training with the British, um, they could have, they had a Vickers machine gun that shot a uh, a 30 cal uh, round, while the British had a, a 303, so they couldn't quite be in a battle and not have the right. Uh, type of equipment, so they turned in a lot of it. That's where they ended up getting their steel helmets as well.
1: So they, were they under British command at the time?
0: Um, th- they were still under the U.S. command, but they were attached to a a British unit, and their and their first training was with a New Zealand um, machine gun battalion. And if you think about it, the the British had been in the war since fourteen. The the uh, New Zealanders were in Gallipoli at one time. Um, so they were being trained, these, these green American units, or green American machine gunners that really had no experience and they were being um, given an opportunity to train next to the New Zealanders who had been in war uh, for a few years now. How far were they from the front? Um, when they first started uh, getting training, they, in their letters, they could hear the guns off the, in the distance and then as they, it was in July, so they landed in June. Uh, it was about July 1st, I believe, um, is when they were actually sent right up to the front, and this would have been the Somme region of France. Um, this is an area where most people who think about World War I think of the trenches, and this was their first experience in the actual trenches. It wasn't until later on in the war there where uh... pershing wanted away from the trenches he was, he was bringing the the uh... the fight to the germans and it was a uh, you don't think about world war one as an open in my grandfather's case an open almost cornfield type of a uh... rolling hills uh... fighting and uh... fighting in the woods um, but it was the trenches as it, with the new zealanders was their first experience can you describe the trenches from the way they described them um Uh, muddy um, and sometimes filled with um, because the trenches traded hands so often it could be held by the French one day Um, a few days later the Germans came in and it was a back and forth type of a thing and and that didn't get anyone anywhere for a number of years Um, and so it was if you think about what uh, you're not going to use a latrine you have to do your business somewhere in that trench so um, that kind of a mess. And when it would rain, it would fill up and get muddy. Um, there were parts of the trenches that they describe as going pretty d- deep down into the, the ground, into a bunker t- style so that at least they can get some kind of reprieve from the constant shelling. Um, but it just seemed like it would be a, a muddy mess. Do you use the phrase in here over the top? What, what did that mean? over the top um, I think of it almost as someone being we would use it maybe gung-ho today or uh, where th- this person is going to put themselves exposed completely to the enemy and sometimes that's not always good so they are potentially facing a German machine gun and they're gonna rush out of this pit and you sometimes hear that even today this that person's over the top they are and it's really, they're, they're exposing themselves to uh, the potential for being annihilated. And and sometimes you think about these guys that it's saying a little prayer and it's like, all right, we're going to go over the top and uh, hoping that our machine guns are gonna outdo their machine guns. Uh, and so um, there was an, a, a case where during the war that uh, one of the battalion dentists from Erie Pennsylvania you know one of the officers and he was killed Harold Parsons the um, one of the other officers what was he doing going over the top but the reality is he's he was exposing himself as a dentist trying to help his battalion surgeon to uh, dress wounds and and do whatever he could because he was from Erie these guys that were fighting were from Erie but even at that risk, he was putting himself at risk to help his other uh, other men. So so the use of that term, he went over the top. W- it was surprising to that officer that why would he put himself at that risk when he didn't have to? Oh, you t- uh,
1: talk about them as a machine gun battalion. So can you talk a little bit about the technology? I mean, what were machine guns
0: like and what, how many people did it take to operate it and what did each person do? So the um, early on in their training, they um, were – trained on, and the the machine guns changed a couple different times while while they were training. They started in uh, Camp Lee training on a Colt Browning machine gun. They called it the uh, potato digger. And it was uh, an 1895 gun, and they called it a potato digger because when you fired at rapid succession, there was a part of the gun that would start to beat on the ground and start to dig up the ground. Um, And then they moved to a, uh, a Vickers machine gun, and, and, and ultimately that Vickers took them through m- most of the war. Um, they didn't get the Browning machine gun until about the third phase of the Meuse-Argonne. Um, but it typically took, there would oftentimes be a corporal that would uh, be a squad leader, so, so to speak. Um, these guns were heavy, so they would first lead off with, planning down a tripod and then the next uh, soldier would come up behind with the heavy gun and then followed behind him by someone carrying ammunition plus a um, a, um, a water, I want to say jacket, but there's a um, uh, there's another term for it, I can't think of it at the time, but th- these guns were, uh, particularly the um, the Browning were water cold, so they would set this up and you figure they would shoot around 300 rounds per minute, and the rest of the men coming up behind them would be carrying additional equipment, whether it be a kit to repair the gun or, or just uh, rounds of ammunition.
1: Did the people in the machine gun battalion also have rifles, or were they just... this just Some one? of them
0: did, but the majority of them would have a pistol because they were having to carry this other ammunition. Um, And they would have what they called limbers or carts to be able to pull it. Um, There were men specifically, if you think about the time, there was not a lot of motor vehicles. So a lot of the men in the battalion, I think there were about 50 in this headquarters company. But some of those guys were wagoneers or horseshoers. Um, I talked to a gentleman who shared his grandfather's diary, diary with me. Uh, he wasn't in France very long, and he got kicked in the head by a horse and sent over to England uh, to recover, finally made it back to the war. They still used horses in the army. Yeah, horses and mules were big in carrying these in their equipment because, again, they were trying to get a lot of weight, heavy guns, and ammunition to the front as quickly as possible. Um, in the first phase of Musargon, the first battle, the the Captain Kane, who I mentioned, um, they had carts sort of set up too close to each other, and and he was worried about the German planes flying overhead, and said spread the transport out. And just as he had said that, they had uh, a um, shell landed uh, near these carts, wounding Kane, took him out of the battle pretty quickly. Uh, one of the other um, sergeants who was uh, was thrown over, but um, yeah, the uh, use of the carts was. And the mules was important and the horses to get all that to the front. So was there much aerial bombing? The shelling was tremendous. The, the way they describe um, sitting and just and I, some of the letters that they wrote, I, I'm visualizing them with their heads face down in the mud, just waiting for the shelling to stop. This is from ground-based right? Guns. Artillery, uh-huh. right. Yeah, um, It's... It, from what I can understand from the letters that that they um, were writing when it came to the aerial, uh, at least for them it was spotting, trying to spot where these machine guns were. And so the Germans would fly over, and at one point we, we were strafing the, the ground, which would give indication to the Ill, artillery, or here's where I'm strafing here. This is where you're going to land your artillery um, or dropping gas. And that was... Um, In this particular unit, gas took out a number of machine gun members just while they were in reserves. Do they all have gas masks? Yes.
1: So you mentioned the Battle of Meuse Argonne. What was that? How significant was it?
0: That was, uh, it's interesting because the Meuse Argonne is is not known to be the the largest and bloodiest battle in American history. And because people think of other battles uh, like Normandy. But uh, if you're looking at just the number of days that the battle occurred, uh, you can almost rank them as um, the invasion of Normandy as being number four, the northern campaign in France being number three, battle of the bulge um, as far as number of deaths, and, and then it came to the, um, the Meuse-Argonne where uh, um, over 26,000 men were killed. And it started in, in uh, late September and ended on November 11th. 1918 so from the time that that this uh, your grandfather's unit landed in France they were only about four months from the end of the war right it was it was a really a short period of time and 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 that was one of the things I was surprised to learn is is um, is from the time he landed and yeah and really the amount of action that he saw was very small but when you're thrown into the positions that they were the survival rate was surprising because some of these, uh, not necessarily his unit, but some of these other, he supported infantry, and the machine gun battalion essentially was designed to, as the infantry went over the top, so to speak, um, they had these machine gunners behind them and essentially firing rounds over their heads at, say, two to 3,000 meters while the shelling occurred, and they would the infantry would try to traverse through a curtain of artillery and machine gun fire. And at some point they got so far, the machine gun was useless. It had to serve as a defensive position. And they might be at the front in battle for three to four days, and then they would come back out of that, and they would rotate the divisions in and out of the front.
1: Did you get a sense reading these letters about what day-to-day life was like? I mean, where would they sleep? What did they eat? Yeah, that, was, that was, to me,
0: that was interesting. Um, I tried to, I had so many letters and, and descriptions, I tried to whittle it down. I, the book, I probably would have had about twice as much information, but I left some of that inf- inf- information in there just so that a person can read and see what what it was like uh, from day to day and, and even at camp um, to hear what, uh, I mentioned Ben Holland when he, um, he was told when he arrived at camp that, um, he went to, uh, to see the doctor and for a checkup, or whatever it was, and, and, the, and the doctor kind of chuckled at him and said, well, uh, you'll get back to the unit once you get shoes. And I, that, that surprised me. I came across it again, and I saw in the postcards that uh, John shared with me the men from Erie arriving at Camp Lee, and you look at the pictures, and these guys are arriving without shoes. And, and this is 1918. It's just so surprising. Um, and, but a lot of these guys were that poor that they, they didn't have it. Say so they were given the equipment, by the end of the war, when they're, when the, when the, uh, after the armistice, they're marching back toward where they're going to be uh, shipped back to the U.S., and they're walking right out of their shoes. So the quality of the shoes that they had were, were not the greatest. Uh, what kind of level of casualties did your grandfather's unit have? Uh, surprisingly, they didn't suffer quite as many as the infantry. You know, fortunate I would say. Um, the The greatest number were from gas burns, uh, mustard gas. There was one report that I saw at the archives, uh, Company D, they had uh, I think it was about 80 men listed as casualties. Um, but th- So the shelling uh, would typically uh, occur and they were whether it be um, shelling of the men that were in the rear or right up front where the infantry were, but it was the, really the infantry that they were trying to defend and helping these guys go forward that really suffered much, uh, many more casualties.
1: You, you write, uh, this is uh, Thomas, what was his first
0: name? Um, uh, William George. Yeah.
1: And he writes, every now and then it leaks through that someone or other that you know quite well has been killed, but it seems so matter of fact that it is startling, but you don't really realize how commonplace it is to be over there. Over here, he wrote. Right. So.
0: Yeah, that. It, it surprised me, and I, I wonder if they had to almost remove themselves from that, um, even after they went through the worst three days. I expected that I would uh, see letters back home, kind of describing uh, what had happened, and and they barely mentioned th- the fatalities like that. One one of the officers did mention that they showed up for a memorial, and he was a little bit upset with the division chaplain's sermon, and saying you're you're talking up here. These guys are from Erie, you know talk. At their level, don't talk about the the um, uh, on this high and mighty. Um, and I so I thought that was interesting the way it, just the way he wanted them to maybe be more uh, down to earth. And um, but you're right. He uh, it's to me it seemed like they had to remove themselves from that. Also knowing that they could easily have been taken themselves. It, and, and one of the officers he mentions the. Um, kind of the cycle of his own thought. He said, I don't know if anyone's ever really uh, talked about this or re- wrote about it. He says, I think I'm gonna have to read or, or maybe even write something myself. What goes through your head and when you're in a battle um, and the psychology of it? Because he's mentioning one point you're thinking about, I'd rather be home in clean sheets. And then the other, at the other moment you're thinking, maybe if I go over the top uh, and, and win a medal, I'll be the hero of my hometown. So th- those kind of thoughts racing through his head. Did influenza hit the unit at all? Yes. Um, it, it was bad uh, pretty much across, and this was particularly after the war was over. Um, they seemed to uh, do a good job in, in keeping men who were um, sick quarantined. Um, but there were a few that did die uh, from not as many in, in the unit, but it was... It was certainly a concern. And, and, the, and the men of the officers of the battalion, it seemed like, just from their own letters, they were doing a good job with keeping hygiene, uh, making sure that uh, if there was someone who was sick that um, he was not um, being dragged just for the sake of being uh, put into drill. They, he was told, you're going you're gonna to rest while the rest of the men drill.
1: I want to read something else from one of the uh, letters home, Hamilton. Wrote in October, just a month before the end of the war, Uncle Alex wrote to me uh, to live a good Christian life that everybody can be proud of. I've been thinking it over and I can't quite dope it out. A Christian life, I've almost forgotten what it's supposed to be. It seems as I remember it, the first thing you were supposed to do was love your enemies. Love your enemies? Great Scott. I can't do that and try to kill them at the same time. Did you get many of those insights, like they're musing over what, what yeah, it is? Particularly, asked particularly to do.
0: Hamilton. He was. Um, uh, one of these guys were, I think he knew he was going to be writing this for someone else. Um, in fact, in the beginning of, the, of his journal, he says, I might write a book someday, which he never did. Um, his sister used some of the, oh, at least one of the letters in her own book, and it was called The Letters of, uh, from Armageddon. And um, But he was very insightful and, and philosophical in his own writings, and there were times where he even said, I'm not uh, a God fearing, but sure enough, I'm, I'm going to pray because I don't know if I'm getting out of this. And uh, that was uh, certainly interesting to hear him because you could sense that he was not um, uh, a man of great faith, but he was certainly struggling at the time as, he, as the shells rained down upon him. Maybe I need to uh, find God here. I have to just.
1: Before we run out of time, I just want to point out this one. Sergeant Joseph M. Duff, in 1912, he was hired to become head football coach at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's the guy who hired Pop Warner for the University of Pittsburgh.
0: It was, um, he was actually replaced by Pop Warner. Um, Duff is um, probably one of my favorites uh, from the machine Gun battalion, that, the story of him, because he was one of these guys who was very patriotic, so he was. Uh, he went to Princeton. Was an All-American. Was hired by uh, University of Pittsburgh to lead up their football team, and he coached for two years. Um, and then Pop Warner came in in 1915 and replaced him. Uh, won the national championship in Pittsburgh, uh, probably using um, Duff's men. But but Duff, um, when the war broke out, he enlisted to become an officer, and he was not. Um, given his commission, apparently, for a vision issue. Um, and his father wrote about, after uh, years later, wrote about how he remembers the day that his son came storming up the stairs to say that he was actually enlisted. And so he, while he couldn't become an officer, so he gets into this machine gun battalion, the 313th, goes over to France, quickly gets promoted from corporal to sergeant, and at the time, they were asking these officers, do you have anybody that we can send to officer school? We need officers. And Duff was promoted, and within 10 days of getting his commission, he was, he was assigned to the 125th Infantry. He was killed. So it was, a, it was a, one of these guys where his, his own brother uh, became the governor of Pennsylvania. So very, he was a very suc- successful man, and you think about it. What, what could Duff have done himself in, in life? So were they more or less fighting continuously from the time they started, uh, had their first fighting? It, it came in phases. Um, so they did this, this battalion did their training first in the Somme in July, and then they became um, uh, a reserve unit in the Somme-Miel. Um, and then the big offensive was the Musargon. And in that phase, they would... Rotate them in for three or four days, bring them out, and then they would rotate them in and again. Um, so there was a, a lot of downtime, and during that downtime, they were also training, uh, especially on the new machine that they were given. What kind of places did they sleep? Um, that's always interesting because uh, when when they went to France, the government said to the people, "You're going to give up your house, your barn, your sheds." will pay you for the usage of them. So whatever town that they could billet in and live in, um, they would move in. And the officers generally, if there was a house, the officers would stay with the family in the house. And the men would sleep in the barn if they could. They had pup tents, so they would each have a shelter half and two men would share a tent. Um, my uh, one uncle I asked when he was, um, I said, do you remember you know, what your dad ta- told you about the war? And most of my family said he really didn't talk about the war, and I think that's a lot of people. But he said he did remember. Um, he was so cold one night that um, that he slept on a pile of manure. And when I'm reading this book or reading the uh, letters from one of the officers, he's de- the officers describing this French uh, village and the, and all the manure powers piles that are around the village. And I, I just picture my grandfather thinking, "This is warm." I'm miserable. I'm gonna lay right here. How did they get the word that
1: the uh, war had ended? That the armistice had been declared?
0: They were marching from one village to another, and someone came riding up on a on a horse and and told them that the um, that the armistice or the that the uh, ceasefire was declared, and and they just kept continuing. They thought, oh, here we go again. We've heard this before. So they it, there was no celebration. Uh, the way they describe it is, we're probably. Uh, you know, going to hear this until we, we know for sure, um, uh, we're not going to believe it.
1: They were, the Armistice was November 11th, of 1918, but they didn't leave France for, what, for six months, something like that? Yeah,
0: they uh, ended up coming back June. Uh, there, was a, uh, there was a hope that they would come back in, uh, by Christmas, right? But if you think of the million men that were over there, million plus, uh, trying to get all of those units back. Um, and then there were one the units that had to go into or divisions had to go into Germany. Um, so they tried to do the divisions and returning them the way they came in. And uh, there was always a hope that, hey, we, maybe we'll get bumped up the line. But um, for a long time, they had to uh, keep the morale up. And uh, when I was at the National Archives in D.C., um, they have the unit records there. And there's a stack of charge sheets about that big. And it was, you know, an example might be so-and-so was, was drunk while on guard duty. <laughs> you know, so trying to maintain discipline was, was very tough. Did they have jobs to do while they were waiting out the, the trip home? Um, to some extent they did. It was mostly drilling and training, um, always with the worry in the back of their head that, you know, what if what, what if Germany acts up again? You know, are we going to have to go back and do this all over? So I would imagine it was tough for the officers. They wanted to get home just as much, but we're going to have to keep the discipline um, as much as we can, and we're going to do that by just drilling and training. And we were getting into the cold-weather months as well, and sometimes they were able to stay uh, indoors, but it still required uh, them to stay physically fit. So your grandfather came home in... When was it? June? It was June of 1919. How old was he then? Uh, He was 24 when he returned. What did he do then with the rest of his life? So he um, um, ended up working for Westinghouse in Trafford. It was a foundry. And he worked as a laborer. He worked there for 40 years. Um, He met uh, my grandmother who was living in the town as well. Uh, He was, his family was Slovak. And his my grandmother was Polish, so they had to elope because you do, you didn't want to have a Slovak and a Polish family together. So they they eloped down to um, uh, Cumberland, Maryland. Um, my grandfather and my grandmother purchased a Sears and Roebuck house out of the catalog. Um, his brother uh, Joe lived um, also in Tyrone. They came and helped build this house together, and they uh, had nine children. In this house, my grandfather brought in his family, his, his um, mother and father, to live in this house as well. But uh, he was a pattern maker uh, for most of his life at the Westinghouse industry or Westinghouse foundry. Did you trace the the aftermath of the war with any of the
1: other soldiers who you who you feature in your book?
0: Yeah, I some of them. For example, one of the most uh, decorated in in the battalion was a um, um, Alex McWilliam he was from Erie, um, he was, from my, my understanding in talking to his son, his, who has since passed away, he said his, his father suffered from the effects of gas, and in the cold winters of Erie, a doctor said, you can't, you're you not gonna survive here in these cold winters, you need to move south, and he ended up moving to Vero uh, Beach and helped to establish a golf course for these doctors down there, would end up becoming a council member, become the mayor of, of Vero, and then become a uh, Florida state representative, um, and um, they have a very successful um, real estate uh, or real estate business still f- uh, named Alex McWilliam, uh, real estate in Florida, and um, uh, a number of them I tried to trace, and sadly I uh, the the battalion commander, um, his name was uh, Heidi Cooper, um the thing that the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission has online is our death uh, records or death certificates and his in his case he ended up taking his own life um, and it was it appeared in a newspaper um, and so I actually found his daughter living in Washington DC and I called her up and I said um, you know Do you have any information about your father's service and um, she said, well, have you read my book? <laughs> and she was actually, um, she was secretary to Joe Kennedy, who was then the uh, ambassador for the UK. And oh, the father of President Kennedy. Correct. Uh, Joe Kennedy, the f- uh, father of JFK. So she was working in, uh, in the UK at the time. And um, Heidekoper, Koper, who was, this was about 1939, the family said, why don't you go visit uh, your daughter Paige? And so he went over to England to visit her, and he said, let's take a trip over to France. I want to see if I can find any of the, um, this is 1939, find any of the trenches. And he went looking with her, and she could tell that he was really, his, his mood was changing, and he was uh, j- just not in this maybe the right state of mind. And she encouraged him, let's just go back to uh, to, to England. And and it was only once he returned to the United States. for I want to say it was maybe three or four weeks later, is when he ended up uh, taking his own life. And I can't help but think that you know, these men were never treated with PTSD. And uh, I found a number of men just going through again the Pennsylvania Historics uh, listings of because you can get a death certificate prior to 1960. I would find men in the unit who had taken their own lives, um, and you can't necessarily say it was that was that reason, but. It was just an, uh, an unusual number that I would come across, and there's over nine hundred men in this battalion that have been transferred in and out and when I would come across you know a gentleman who drank lysol and it said the death certificate said he was probably insane and and what did he see that um, that um, you know just he couldn't deal with in in that uh, respect
1: do you have in the uh front of the book that the, this book has been endorsed as an official project of the United States World War I Centennial Commission. What is that commission and, and how did it get an endorsement?
0: So the, um, the commission was, um, it, it was started with an act of, of Congress and there's a group that wanted to see in Washington D.C. a memorial dedicated to all that served in World War I. So on the mall you'll see the, um, the Vietnam National Memorial, Korean National Memorial and the um, World War II and so one gentleman said surely there's going to be a, a school kid that comes here one day and says, well if there was a two <laughs> where's the one <laughs> and so the effort was to uh, build a memorial in honor of the uh, men and women of that served in World War One, and the commission is uh, not allowed to use public funding to build this memorial and so it's a uh, I think there's really three aspects. that, When they were coming up, they knew that the centennial of the world world was happening. Um, The three main things were to honor, educate, and commemorate. And I think I fit into that education piece. And uh, I was talking to a gentleman who uh, wrote his own book. And uh, I was sharing information that he needed on research that he was doing and I asked him about his book, and it was endorsed. And he said, yeah, you here send your book to the commission and see what they think. And uh, I was fortunate to have received a letter that said, um, you know, this fits what we're trying to do in educating the public about uh, World War One." We only have about a minute left, but tell us about your lapel pin there. It was the uh, poppy, which is uh, often known in, as um, as the flower that would grow in just about any Desolate area in France, and the men were really surprised that this place could be shelled to hell and they would, uh, these poppies would grow. So it became a symbol of, of life, so to speak. And, and um, the World War I Centennial Commission, we were down in D.C. F- you know, on November 11th uh, to commemorate the 100th anniversary and, and uh, received this pin as, um, during one of the ceremonies. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Andrew Capitz. He
1: is the author of this book, Good War, Great Men, The Detailed Accounts of a Machine Gun Battalion During World War I. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.